Well, if you will, please turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Okay, this is a big section. We're going to be looking at like multiple chapters. I'm not going to read all of it, so you're going to be very much helped if you have your Bibles just open on your lap, on your side, so that as we go through this longer section in the book of Acts, you'll, you won't get lost. So we'll start about halfway through Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 32. That's where we left off last week. You know, sometimes the hardest things in life are actually to admit when we're wrong. Can I get an amen? I was recently reminded of this. Um, So about a year ago, my wife and I had a discussion And so she wanted to put in central air conditioning, and I wanted a hot tub. So we went about this discussion, and I made my case, she made her case, and she won. And about three weeks ago, when it was 140 degrees, I turned to her and I said, Lisa, you were right. I was wrong. I am thankful that I listened to you. Right? And then she like joked about like, can I get that on, can I get that on tape, right? Right, e- even just saying that, even admitting, it kind of feels awkward coming out of the mouth sometimes. It's hard to admit when we're wrong, when, when we've thought wrong about something, when we've acted wrong about something. I mean, I, I dare say that there's probably not a humble man or woman in this world that doesn't at least have some mild chafing at saying, oh, I was wrong. I, I, I didn't know all the information. I, I came to wrong conclusion on this or that. I mean, when was the last time you heard a, a president or a, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or, or a major leader in our world say these words, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I mean, we don't do that because that could be a sign of weakness, right? That, that could be a, a bad for shareholders. And so we don't admit when we're wrong. Now, we all get things wrong from time to time. I mean, that should not be a shocking statement. I might say some shocking things later. That is not the shocking part of the sermon. We all blow it. We all make mistakes. We're all wrong. We all have wrong-headed thoughts about various things. I think sometimes the scariest thing is we don't know where they are, right? But, but some of the things that we get wrong have very little ramifications, right? There, there's very little um, at stake if we get something wrong. But then there's other things that if you get wrong, the stakes are quite high. So, so religiously, spiritually speaking, what if we get God wrong? What if we get who God is and what God's doing? What if we get what God wants to do in this world? The the stakes are pretty high, right? They're just growing in severity because if we get that wrong, there's a lot of things that kind of fall by way of that wrongness. So today we're going to see sort of two men They're compared in the text, but there's two men, and both find out that they're wrong. They have a wrong 
thought about God and his kingdom. And the question is which one, in light of being confronted by God himself, which one will admit that they were wrong? The the big idea that's going to be behind me this morning is simply this. God's kingdom is for all people, but not all people are in God's kingdom. That's the tension of this text. So, so first, let's, let's look at this first, um, th- this first clause. God's kingdom is for all people. And we, and we pick up on Peter. Remember, remember we, we left Peter back in chapter 5. And now we pick up on Peter and his ministry. And in verse 32, and then again in verse 36, we've got two stories about Peter going about and healing. First Aeneas and then um, Tabitha, or another name, also known as Dorcas. Dorcas herself is resurrected. Right? It's amazing, right? Peter, or God is at work in a mighty way in Peter's life. And many put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. And yet, the most amazing aspect of verse 32 through verse 43 is not the healing. It's not the miracles. The most interesting and amazing thing isn't what Peter does, but where Peter does it. Look there in verse 32 and 36. Peter first is in Lydda, and then he goes up to Joppa. Aeneas is healed in Lydda there in 32, and then Dorcas in Joppa in 36. And then if you go at the end of chapter 9, right, we get the setting, and Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with Simon, a tanner. And then at chapter 10, the scene kind of cuts like a movie, right? And we're in Caesarea, which is north of Joppa. And we've got to ask ourselves, what's the significance of these three cities? Well, well, it's simply this. Peter is slowly moving into Gentile territory. Uh, I'm not good at chess. I'm not like below average at chess, but, but sometimes I'll watch these fascinating uh, videos of like a grand master secretly going to like, um, you know, Central Park and playing average Joe in speed chess. It's amazing, right? And he, this grand master like, you know, just pretends to be just, oh, I just want to play chess. And they set everything up and the other person has no idea that it's coming. The other person just plays right into the grand master's hand and at the right moment he or she strikes and the game's over and then at the end as they shake it's you know revealed like oh they're really good at chess that's something of what's going on here right right god's like the grand master and he's positioning peter as a pawn in the perfect position for the gospel to go to the gentiles And I just say, this is sort of a spoiler alert, but as it relates to the Gentiles, right? At this point, it's game, set, and match. The gospel is going to go there. The only question is, is Peter going to get on board? So we end in chapter 9 in Joppa. And it is a, a city northwest of Jerusalem. It's on the Mediterranean Sea. 
And that city should remind you of another story. It's, it's a city that does not come up very often in your Bibles, but it's a city that came up the, the most recent, if you just keep going back in your Bible, to another character, Jonah. If you remember Jonah, Jonah gets a commission from God to take the gospel to Nineveh, right? Repent and be ju- or if you don't repent, you're going to get judged, right? And Jonah gets this commission from God and Jonah wants nothing, right? Jonah's like, nope, I am not going to Nineveh. I would be caught, rather be dead than go to Nineveh because Jonah hated Nineveh and he had his reasons, didn't he? They, they, they were his enemies, And so Jonah's sort of ethnic superiority, he looked up at Nineveh and said, no, they don't deserve God's mercy. But interesting, if you you keep reading the narrative, what Jonah, Jonah actually gets a lot right because his biggest concern about going to Nineveh isn't that God's judgment will come upon them. He's worried because he knows God and how merciful he is that they might actually repent. And so he's like, ah, I know how gracious and merciful God is. And I got this bad feeling like they're going to repent and God's going to be merciful. And I don't want that to happen. So Jonah flees. And it's only after he has a whale of an experience. Dad joke, sorry. Right? That, That God gets him marching in the right direction. And Jonah goes to Nineveh. He says, if you don't repent... You're going to be judged, and they repent. And it's interesting. The end of the story of Jonah, one doesn't wonder if Nineveh repented. They did. The question is, did Jonah repent? He's still frustrated, bitter, angry. Well, Jonah, as he flees from God to Tarshish, he boards a ship in Joppa. So right there in chapter 9, as it leaves, as we go into chapter 10, you're thinking, and Luke wants to make this very, very clear, is Peter the new Jonah? Is Peter going to run from God's call? God's call on the Gentiles. It's, It's eerily similar, Peter's call to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and Jonah's call to preach the gospel to Nineveh. The question is, will Peter run from God? Or will Peter finally get on board? Will Peter stand in God's way or get out of God's way? Well, if you're just wondering, what's Peter going to do? Well, let's let's pick it up in chapter 10, all right? We're going to read this section. So chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God came in and said to him, Cornelius. And he said at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants And a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. We'll pause our story there. So, we're introduced to Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman citizen. He's a centurion, meaning that he's a non 
commissioned officer in the Roman army. And we also learn he's a devout, God-fearing man. Now, to be clear, Cornelius is not converted here, okay? At this moment, he is seeking God. And, and really, when you're a Roman citizen, like you worship many, many gods, right? That, that was what it meant to be Roman. And so it looks like in his time in Palestine, he, he's had some sort of interaction with Judaism. And so he's now, more, he's now monotheistic. And so he's like, oh, yeah, I think Judaism is on to something. So, so, so though he doesn't know Jesus, he, he doesn't know the gospel. Actually, that's what he needs Peter for to explain who Jesus is. Cornelius is seeking God. He's interested in God. He's open-hearted as it relates to God. And so an angel comes to him and says, you, you, everything will be explained. You just need to go find Peter, who's in Joppa. And so he sends, right? He, he, he sends some, some people, some, some trusted people to go find Simon and bring Simon back. Now, I just want to, want to say as a parenthesis that this vision, it is unique, okay? It is unique in redemptive history. The gospel is about to go to the Gentiles. In one sense, this cannot be replicated. But I will say this. My friends who minister um, in the Middle East, in the 1040 window, they, they tell me, and they've told me many, many stories, about how they'll be at church or a gathering of Christians, and someone, a Muslim, let's say, comes to their church and said, last night I had a vision. I had a vision of this angel or something, and they told me that I need to go come to this church, and you will explain everything to me. Talk about teeing it up, right? And then they proceed to tell them about Jesus. This is how this works. Um, rarely, I'm not going to say ever, but rarely does it work that just the vision saves people. Actually, how God kind of works this is that there's a vision and then there's an interpreter, there's an interpreter who helps explain the vision. That's, in some ways, our role as the church, right? Well, Cornelius sends for Peter in Joppa. Let's pick it up now in verse 9. I'm going to read verse 9 all the way to the end of the chapter. So buckle up. This is a great, amazing story. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the house top about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being led down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed at what the vision, uh, what the vision that he had uh, seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made an inquiry for Simon's household, stood at the gate and called out and asked whether Simon was called Peter was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. 
what is the reason you are coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you and come to the house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in as guests. The next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted up his voice, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with and visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I sent for, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I send for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened up his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that was sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee and the baptism of John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with his Holy Spirit and with power. He was sent doing good and healing all who were pressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to the people, but to all who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him uh, after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to people and to testify that this is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers and all, uh, um, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptism, baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they were asked to remain for some days. We'll end there. Pretty amazing story, isn't it? Peter's in Joppa, just to sort of summarize. Peter's in Joppa, and he's up on a roof, and he's hungry. And he sort of falls into a trance. Now, I don't know if you've ever been, like, woken up from a nap, and you're like, am I awake or am I not awake? And the answer is, like, yes to both. That's like, sort of like Peter, right? He, he's awake, but he's not awake. And then from heaven, we have this, 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 this blanket, this sheet falling from heaven, which is eerily similar to what happened and the similar language to what happened at Jesus' baptism. Right? You remember that the, the heavens opened up, God pronounced his favor on Jesus, and then the Spirit fell on Jesus. The language is eerily similar. 
only there's many, many differences. This, this blanket, the sheet that comes down from heaven, we, we see what's on it. There's animals, all sorts of animals, reptiles, birds. Some of the, uh, some of the animals, remember Peter's hungry, look quite good and appetizing. But others are repulsive to Peter. He is forbidden. Remember remember, uh, what Jason just read in Leviticus? He is forbidden to eat those sorts of things. There is a, a distinction between clean and unclean as it relates to food. And Peter has never eaten anything unclean. And so Peter responds in the only way that he knows how to respond. He says, heavens no, like Lord, no, I am not eating that. I'm not. He couldn't. He, he protests, right? He, he replies back, by no means, Lord. And three times the Lord says, kill and eat. And three times, Peter's got a reputation for this, right? Peter loves to deny the Lord three times, right? There's this subtle irony here. The Lord tells him three times, kill, eat. And three times he says, not a chance. Eventually, the Lord tells Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. And you just put yourself in Peter's shoes. I mean, he is, and it says it uh, multiple times, he is, his head's spinning, right? He's perplexed. He's like, what in the world is going on here? Like, like everything I know about how I'm supposed to live my life, everything I know about being holy is now being challenged in this one moment. Like, what do you mean take and eat? I can't take and eat. I would be unclean. As his head is spinning, Cornelius' men, they arrive, don't they? And they explain the situation, and Peter goes to Caesarea to meet with Cornelius. And when he gets there, he explains everything to them, right? But first, before he explains the gospel, which, like, it's just so clear the gospel call that Peter talks about. It's a wonderful exposition of what the gospel is. But before he gets there, you know, as as Peter is going into the house of Cornelius, when he finally gets back to uh, Caesarea, he says, it's not lawful for me to be here. Now, now for us, that's weird, right? Like, what do you mean it's not lawful? But, but maybe the, the, the illustration um, that, that might help is, it, it'd be like, like a German soldier walking into a Jewish home during World War II, right? right it, it wasn't just socially inappropriate. It was downright deadly. And that's Peter's predicament, right? He is not allowed to go into that house because it would make him ceremonial unclean. He would have relational and social stigma, uh, you know, uh, shame as a result of, of going there. And so he, he just wants to get it before Cornelius and say, you know that I'm not supposed to be here. And so then he asks Cornelius, so, so why did you call me knowing that I should not be here? And Cornelius just basically says, can you just tell us about God? You have a message. An angel came. Tell me the message. And in verse 34, Peter opens his mouth and he preaches a simple, amazing, life-changing gospel about Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ lived, he died, he was resurrected. And if you put your faith in him, if you turn to him, you are forgiven of your sins. He, he proclaims this and says that it's not just for the Jews, it's even for Cornelius, for the Gentiles. 
the Holy Spirit descends. They are converted. This is the conversion of Cornelius. And they are, right? The Holy Spirit's fallen. Like, why shouldn't they be baptized? And so they baptize them right there. But, but, but notice the, the first words that drip out of Peter's lips when he begins to preach the gospel there in verse 34. It really does kind of set the stage for what is going on in Peter's life and heart and how, what, what changes are going on. Verse 34 says this, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The point is that King Jesus welcomes anyone who puts their trust and faith in him into the kingdom. The point is that first phrase of the big idea, that God's kingdom is for all people, all nations. Doesn't matter your ethnicity. Doesn't matter your national identity. Your national identity doesn't get you a free pass into the kingdom, nor does it get you a free pass excluded for the kingdom. All nations are welcomed into the kingdom of God. And so this was the message of Peter. And it really is incredible because Peter finally gets it. Three times he pushes back like no, but at some point the penny drops. And I'm not sure where the penny drops. Maybe as he's going to Caesarea, maybe he remembers Jesus's words when he said, it's not what you put in your mouth that makes you um, unclean. It's what comes out of your heart that makes you unclean. Well, it doesn't really matter when Peter finally gets it. The, the point is that he does get it, and he realizes that he was wrong. Like Jonah, Peter was slow to listen, slow to understand, but he now gets it. Now, this is the point of chapter 11, right? In chapter 11, verses 1 down to verse 18, he has to go down to Jerusalem and explain to people who, who have been brought up all their life to think the Gentiles are excluded from the covenant. And he has to explain why they are now brought into the covenant. And so he retells his story in chapter 11. And look there at the end of, uh, um, chapter, or the middle of chapter 11, verse 17. He, he's telling the story. He's trying to convince them and persuade them why, the, the, you know, the spirit has been poured out on the Gentiles. And he says, verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them, the Gentiles, as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's Peter's lesson that he's learned. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter finally realized that he was standing in God's way. Like Jonah. Jonah was in the way of what God was doing in Nineveh. And now Peter was in the way of what God was doing in the world. And in order for the, the, the gospel to go to the Gentiles, to go to the nations, Peter had to reconcile with some deep-seated prejudice against the Gentiles. Everything in his upbringing taught him that the Gentiles were unclean, unworthy of God's covenant of grace. And yet the gospel call was for all people, First in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and also to every nation, the Gentiles. God's kingdom is for all people. 
You see, when we go back to this vision, we think, and Peter thinks, that this vision that comes from heaven, he thinks it's all about food. But remember, in the Bible, when there's a vision, we need an interpretation of that vision. And Peter sort of gives us the interpretation of this vision, right? So this blanket, it, it, it comes down, and there's four corners representing the four corners of the globe, right? North, west, north, south, east, and west. And on there are all sorts of animals, right? Clean and unclean. But, but notice the context. The context isn't food. The context is Cornelius. That's the context of this vision. You see, God's not talking about food per se. He's talking about people. That God is saying that people, even the Gentiles, can be made clean in Christ. And so that's what these animals represent. They, they, they represent the swarms of ethnicities, the multitude of peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation that Peter all his life has been told you need to avoid. And now he's saying, no, 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 no. The gospel's going to them. They are, can be made clean in Christ. And the question is, then how? And God gives it to Peter right in that vision, right? He says, what God has made clean, don't call common, right? God makes clean. It's the offer of the gospel, right? It's not that we, we try hard, we, we, we just try to wash ourselves with, with spiritual rituals. No, the point is we can't make ourselves clean. We are spiritually defiled. No, no amount of good works will pay that. The gospel call that comes to us in this text is that you can make clean, not by doing certain things and avoiding other things, but you can be made clean in Jesus. And having been made clean, you then get to be in God's kingdom as he rules, as a good king. God shows no partiality. Well, now, let, just briefly... How does this vision relate to us? Like, how, how do we apply this situation? Because, you know, the, the gospel has come to the Gentiles. Not every Gentile. You know, it's still, there's still work to be done. How does this relate to us? Well, I think on one level, if we're honest, all of us have prejudices. Just the other day, this past week, I was running from my office and I was doing a loop and I ran down Meridian. And as I got, and I'm, telling you it's like right there on the street on the sideway someone in um you know uh, chalk wrote two words homeless trash right there as i'm running i just stared at it we can have our prejudice against people who are on the street they can be seen as trash as a tax burden as unclean, a burden. We have our prejudices. We can write off an entire church because of a bad experience and be prejudiced against the church. We could write off a, an entire ethnic group because of what someone in that ethnic group maybe once said to us. Or we can just sort of avoid people and mentally excommunicate them because we disagree on secondary issues. 
As one author put it, our sheets easily fill with educational, racial, cultural, and spiritual rejects as we cry out, by no means, Lord, I will not welcome them in the church. Whatever that them is. And so the result of that sort of church, well, it's a distorted church, isn't it? It's a disformed church. It's a disfigured church. And I'll just point out one more thing in this, and this is, this is the, the complicated thing about this, is that if you look at Peter, it's not like Peter's a bad guy. But Peter, in many ways, is a good guy. He's actually praying multiple times in our narrative. He, he's worshiping God, and even as he's praying and worshiping God, he has some prejudice against the Gentiles. They're unclean. I want nothing to do with them. And then he has to go back to Jerusalem and convince them of that same reality. It's not just simple enough to be like, these are the good guys and bad guys. When you think of Peter and Jonah, they were filled with contradictions. And yet by God's grace, God was working in Peter's life. And the wonderful thing is, when we get to the end, when Peter is confronted by God, even though he rejects God three times, Peter finally admits that he was wrong. And he goes into a Gentile's home and he preaches the gospel. Right? It, it, I think it's hard for us to imagine how, how, how hard that was for Peter. I mean, I, it, it's hard to, to, to imagine what, what that would be like even for us or an application for that. Right? That, that, but that's the case. The story of the gospel going to the Gentiles is a story of Peter having to actually submit to God and realize that he was in God's way. Well, that's the first part. The second part's going to be faster. All right? So not only is God's kingdom for all people, but all people are not in God's kingdom. We're going to, we're going to read chapter 12, starting in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison and delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Verse 6. And now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains, and centuries before the doors were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell on off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by him was an angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision when they had Past the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them and it on its own accord. And they went out and went along the, one of the streets, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all of the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, 
where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhonda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate and ran in, reporting that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's an angel. But Peter, which I might say, wouldn't you still go to the door? But there's an aside. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them and his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, tell them, tell these things to James and to the brothers, then he departed and went to another place. And when the day, and when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what became of Peter. And after Herod searched after him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's food for, country for food. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last breath. But the Lord of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, beginning with them, John, uh, John whose other name was Mark. Now Herod who were introduced there in chapter 12, verse 1. He is a slimy man, okay? I don't know how else to describe him, right? He is the ruler of Judea, and he was only a ruler for about four years. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great, who comes up during Christmas time, right? Herod, who tried to, to kill um, Jesus as a baby. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. And he violently oppresses the Christians, and he realized that it's politically advantageous to do so, right? The, the Jews love it. And so he kills one of the th- sons of thunder, James's brother. And then he imprisons Peter. He arrests him. And, and we see there in, in verse 3 that this is the day of unleavened bread. Now, that's important because what, what that means is that Herod can't kill Peter during this season, during this festival. Right? He's got to wait until it's over, and then he can bring out, charge Peter, and do pretty much the same thing that happened to Stephen. Right? But he can't do it right now. So he can imprison him, but he's got to wait. And so he, he, you just see Herod, right? He, he gets like multiple guards. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, Peter's not a real threat. And yet, just look at, there's people guarding the gate. There's people like sleeping in between him. He's in chains. I mean, they are making sure Peter's not getting out. And yet, that's exactly what happens, right? Peter gets out an angel, wakes him up, strikes him. And we're going to see kind of an irony here. Peter gets struck and so does Herod. But they're not the same type of strike. Well, Peter finally gets out, realizes that it's not a vision. He goes to Mary's house. He knocks on the door. This woman's like, oh, it's Peter. And she can't convince anyone. Eventually, you know, they come out. Peter says, you need to explain. I'm out. Jailbreak angel style, go tell everyone, I'm okay. And then he sort of vanishes. And, and really, this is the sort of end of Peter in the book of Acts, all right? He sort of shows up, but this is pretty much it. Peter now is going to go on the wayside, and you're going to pick up the story with Paul. 
Well, when Herod finds out, he is livid to say the least, right? He kills the soldiers, thinks that they're maybe in on it. And then uh, Herod, if you remember, right, that there's a, there's a famine, right? We saw this in, um, that I, I skipped over, but at the end of chapter, uh, chapter 11, the church of Antioch, there's a famine. And it's interesting that, that what they do, that, that this Antioch church, which is a largely Gentile church, they give to the Jerusalem church during this famine, right? You see it in Acts 2, saw that in Acts 4, and the point of that little section of Scripture is to say that the, the Gentile church in Antioch is the true church. They're doing exactly what the church has always done, what the Jewish church was doing back in Acts 2 and 4. Well, there's a famine, and so people north of Judea um, in Sidon and, and, and Tyre, they're, they're like, hey, we need to be on your good side, Herod. We, we need money. We need peace because you're withholding food from us. So they get kind of the, the right-hand man of Herod, um, this guy named Blastus, and they go, you be an advocate for us. So they, they do that, and, well... He, he, he puts on his royal clothes, Herod does. He sits on his throne. He gives this great speech. And they respond, he's a god. And at that, Herod is struck by an angel and he dies, right? And then Luke, who's the doctor, right? That, that was his profession. Historically, we know that. Luke gives us the, the gruesome details of Herod's death. And the question for us is simply this. In this story, which is an amazing story, who's in charge? Who is king? The Christians aren't in charge, right? I mean, they're pretty helpless. All they can do is a prayer service. Peter can't break out alone. He's an angel. The, the soldiers, they, they do everything. They sleep next to him. They put him in chains. They're not in control. Herod? Herod looks like like the one who's in charge of all this, right? He's called in verse 1 of chapter 12, the king. He's a king. He's in charge. He's got power. He reigns. He rules. He orchestrates all this thing. But at the very end, you realize, nope, not even King Herod. He's not in charge. He can't stop this movement. It, it, the whole chapter ends with the word, of the, God, the word of God spreading. So who's in charge? It's God. God is the king in this story. He is the king of the kingdom. I left out a little interesting nugget when Peter gets to Cornelius' house. Do you remember what Peter actually did? I read it. Peter falls down and worships Peter. Do you remember that? And Peter says, get up. I'm just, I'm just a man. I'm just a dude. Just stop that, right? Like that, that's, that, that's weird. I'm not God. Only worship is for God. Well, the same thing comes up again in this chapter, doesn't it? They're, they're parallels. Herod is worshipped. Only Herod does not say, nope, I'm just a king. He welcomes it. And Luke tells us he, he, he dies because he did not give glory to God. Peter submitted to the lordship of Jesus. Herod did not. And Herod's tragic ending was just that. You see, the call of the gospel isn't just to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who is Lord over our lives. He is in charge. He calls the shots. I mean, since, since we were kids, 
we sort of push back on authority, right? I don't want to. No. And, and I think if, if this last year has taught us everything, it's also a reminder that we don't like being told what to do, do we? We hate it. And yet here, God's call to repent and believe the gospel, it comes. Here's the opportunity for Herod to realize that Peter is preaching the true gospel. Here's an opportunity for him to repent and believe. And instead, in his pride, he won't submit. That is what pride does. Pride will not submit to external authority. We become the arbiter of truth. We are the ultimate authority of our lives. And it's not just Herod, right? We, we all struggle with this. So let me just ask you, is there an area in your life? You might say, yes, Jesus is Lord. But is there an area of your life that you're hiding? That you really don't want Jesus to touch? Is there an area of your life that you're like, yes, I've submitted my life generally, but not particularly at this. See, it's easy to judge Herod, and he is judged. This is a judgment that comes upon him. And it's a warning to us, but at the same time, it's a reminder to us that we too, we too can hide. We don't want God to touch all areas of our life, just, just, just part. Well, Herod didn't admit that he was wrong, did he? Peter does. Jesus is king. He's king of his kingdom. He invites, that is the call, and it goes to all people. And yet, the tragedy is that not all people turn and put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. It's for all people. The question is this. Do you want in? And the way in is through Jesus Christ, through a good king who loves us enough to die for us. Let's pray. Uh, God, we are just so grateful, Lord, that, that we who are spiritually unclean can be made clean through your Son, Jesus Christ. We, we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us to flee sin and run to you. We pray, Lord, that you, you would be so beautiful, so glorious, so good, so, so amazing that all we would want to do is worship you and not worship ourselves. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us and that we would surrender our lives to you. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.